Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Beyond Prisons. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Sonnenstein, and I am delighted to share a wonderful conversation that Kim Wilson and I had with Philadelphia-based writer, editor, and agitator Vicki Osterweil about her new book, In Defense of Looting, A Riotous History of Uncivil Action. It's out now from Bold Type Books, and you can check out the episode notes for links and more information. In the course of our conversation, Vicky rebuts many protest pundit cliches, such as the claim that quote-unquote real and legitimate protests are nonviolent by nature, while rioting and looting constitutes an act of hijacking by malevolent outside forces. We talk about black women and armed resistance as part of the historical legacy of these tactics, as well as the difference between liberatory rioting and white rioting. We discuss the power of rioting and looting to threaten the perceived invincibility of property relations, as well as prison riots as significant planes for organizing. We also touch on looting and rioting's place within the history of labor struggles in the United States, and how doing so can give us a bigger picture of those struggles than the union-centric histories we're used to often can. Before we get to the interview, just a few quick notes. We wanted to shout out everyone who responded to our calls requesting support for Kim's sons, Paul and Claude, this year. They have both been thrilled to receive books and letters from you all, and it really means a lot to Kim and I to see what a wonderful community this podcast has built over the years. So from both of us, thank you so much for your support. Finally, if you like the show and want to help us keep going, please consider making a donation or subscribing to give a few dollars a month. You can head on over to beyond-prisons.com slash donate to give, or you can find a link in the episode notes as well. Just remember that the more regular financial support we have, the more time we can devote to the show, the more episodes we can put out, etc. And if you can't give but you still want to help, you can rate, review, and subscribe, which helps boost our visibility, or you can just tell your friends, family, followers, and comrades, and anyone else about us. We really appreciate the help. All right, that's it for now. Here's our conversation with Vicki Osterweil. Well, Vicki, sincerely, thank you so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, your book is fantastic. Kim and I were raving about it prior to this call. Um, and I think, you know, maybe an organic place to start the conversation would be just to hear a little bit about how you arrived at writing this book. I, I feel like you know, as somebody uh, who's been a journalist and engaged in organizing for years, you know, a lot of the subjects uh, that come up in the book, I've certainly encountered, you know, over the last decade or so. And I I just kind of wondered what the genesis story was for you uh, for this book. Yeah. And thank you both so much for having me. It's such a delight. And and thank you for the very kind words about the book. Um, uh, I'm really excited to be here as well. Um, Yeah. So the book, the book comes out of, um, during the uh, during the Ferguson uprising in 2014, um, I wrote a, a piece um, called "In Defense of Looting" as well for the New Inquiry, where I was an editor at the time. Um, that sort of, you know, laid out a lot of the arguments that I would end up expanding or deepening in the in the book. Um, luckily, I didn't end up feeling like I had to retract any of them, which was nice. Um, so yeah, so I, I wrote that piece, and it it sort of. It, it spread around a lot. I think um, it was it was particularly sort of widespread during Baltimore because it came out sort of near, mm-hmm. you know, a few weeks into Ferguson when things were sort of starting to 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 enter a different phase there. Um, and yeah, I was approached by a publisher um, to turn it into a book. Um, 
I then, you know, dove into um, researching sort of a lot of the claims I made, um, you know, as you mentioned, are sort of like in the original essay are built on a lot of like what I would describe as kind of like activist common sense of a certain kind that has been developed from decades of and, and, and indeed centuries of the black radical tradition and um, the uh, often overlapping, but not always sort of other radical traditions um, and indigenous traditions in America. So I sort of had a sense of a lot of that, um, but I hadn't, you know, I hadn't um, dove as deeply into those, into those questions. So um, in sort of thinking about how I would turn it into a book, like I, I realized sort of what, what, what I needed to do to buttress the argument, how to make the argument sort of whole, what I needed to still learn um, since writing the book was mostly a process of learning for me. Um, and then um, for a variety of reasons uh, on the part of the publisher, um, it, it, uh, it didn't, it was written sort of, most of it was written 2015, 2016. Um, mm -hmm. And then it didn't come out and then I had to move publishers um, and then sort of, so from there, it, the timing of it ended up being um, in some ways fortuitous, but I sort of sat, I had right. that manuscript going for about five years. So. Wow. Yeah. yeah, no, I thought it was really, uh, that's really interesting to hear because of, uh, you know, I noticed the footnote towards the end about how the book was kind of going through its final reviews, uh, you know, at the beginning, uh, I guess, end of spring, beginning of the summer, I think this year, um, as protests were really starting to hit the streets. So that's really interesting, the way the book kind of serves as a bridge um, between these pivotal moments, I think, in the, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and you know, I, I like the, uh, I don't know if you were using the term common sense in this way, but it is interesting because I think a lot of the the concepts and the things that you talk about in the book, you know, have always kind of struck me at face value. You know, uh, for example, the next thing that I wanted to ask you about was sort of the discourse around how uh, peaceful protests are hijacked by looters and rioters mm -hmm. and how the people who engage in that are criminal, you know, sort of non-protesters. They're, they're separate. And, you know, of course, that was always never really sat right with me, but I didn't really have a sort of a thorough analysis or historical grounding necessarily for why that might be. Um, and so, you know, maybe one thing uh, if, as we sort of tiptoe our way into the content of the book, um, you know, I would just love to hear how you would respond um, to that very common refrain that, you know, protests, I guess, are by their default nature or ideal nature peaceful. Uh, and then when looting or rioting happens, that involves a protest being hijacked and that the people who engage in that are not part of the protest. Um, how do you respond to that when, when you hear that sort of thing? What, what are some of the arguments that come to mind? Yeah, um, well, well, for the for the most recent movement, um, I think the 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 first answer I usually give is, what protests are you talking about? Because both Ferguson, Ferguson, the Baltimore uprising, and then of course the George Floyd uprising began with rioting and looting. Um, so I think like at this point, um, in order to make that argument that sort of there's this peaceful protest that's being hijacked, you have to like really close your eyes and and bury your head in the sand to the very very recent history of social movement. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things I wanted to do with the book and, 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 um, and what I was sort of working with was that that's actually true across history, that the idea that, that, that protest is a sort of peaceful and legible demand being asked of, um, the people in power and anything else is sort of criminality or, um, or opportunism or any of these sort of slanders, um, is, is as old as forms of resistance themselves. Um, and but but it but has never actually existed. There has never been a historical point at which um, a sort of purely peaceful, um, you know, 
uh, form of demonstration has really transformed or changed or even really, frankly, existed at a mass scale. Um, you know, I mean, I think like the, the sort of things you can think of is maybe like the, you know, the the 2003 anti-Iraq war um, uh, demonstrations, which 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 those were very peaceful um, and achieved very, very little. But I think like, you know, the that that really that myth of nonviolence um, really emerges in the 60s um, and, and has been sort of drilled into our heads in the wake of the civil rights movement. Um, and one of the things I spend a lot of my book doing um, is, you know, three three chapters of the book. Um, is talking about the way in which um, the nonviolent civil rights movement never really existed, not the way that it is taught, not the way it's talked about, and not the way it's remembered. So there were dedicated and, you know, um, and very brave and 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 understandably uh, strategic moments of nonviolent um, struggle in the South uh, in the in the fifties, especially um, in the early sixties. But um, even even those movements were often protected by um, armed guards. Um, were often, and and those and the people who participated in it tend to recognize nonviolence as a tactic, not a philosophy. Um, and in the wake of that movement um, and the attempt by, um, you know, the sort of liberal, the sort of post, the post civil rights, um, or as Dylan Rodriguez in their new book say uh, calls the white reconstruction myth around the civil rights movement, um, the idea that um, as they've tried to co-opt that movement, they've tried to say it was always nonviolent philosophically. Um, there were very, very few people who were actually philosophically nonviolent. And even those people tended to be protected by armed guards because the fact of the Jim Crow South was of of constant um, white supremacist terrorism um, and and night riding and political violence. Yeah, thank, thank you. you for that. No, that, um, and you're anticipating the question I was going to um, ask you about that. Um, I'd like to build on on what you just said because I think that there's um, there's a point in the book. Uh, I think it's one of the later chapters where you are talking about um, armed self defense mm -hmm. and uh, and the role of Black women uh, in armed resistance. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that. An important moment in the sort of history and genesis of, of Black Power um, is Robert F. Williams uh, in in '59, I believe, um, declaring that it's time we you know it's time to fight back. We have to start shooting back. We have to we have to fight violence with violence. Um, and one of the things that I think is really telling about that moment, um, and that that he writes about in his memoirs, um, is that the women of Monroe, North Carolina, where he was an organizer, um, and where where this where his movement sort of came out of, um, they wanted to. Um, attack uh, a white man who had raped a woman um, in in broad daylight. Um, they wanted to just go and and attack his house with guns. Um, and Robert Williams said, "No, no, no. The courts will give us justice. Like that's what." And and they were furious with him. Um, the courts, of course, acquitted the white man. Um, and so they were like literally. It was outside the courtroom, and they were yelling at Robert F. Williams right before he gives this famous quote. You know that is then sort of like gone down in history as this moment when the civil rights movement sort of starts to declare its its intention to to participate in in armed self defense. Um, so so even to that moment, it's black women who are who are um, the most sort of the most aware of the necessity of of that of that kind of action. Um, but it goes back, you know, much much further. Obviously, Harriet Tubman um, is a, a practitioner and advocate of armed self defense. Um, but we also have Ida B. Wells. Um, Ida B. Wells is, you know, her. She is remembered largely as a sort of historian, journalist of of lynch law and lynching, which is, of course, very important. Um, and and her work on that is is invaluable. Um, but she was also a very very 
um, open and constant advocate for armed self-defense. Um, so there's a long, long history of, um, of black women organizers being at the forefront of this, this kind of organizing. Um, another, another important example is in, is in 63, um, the Cambridge, Maryland movement, which is, um, sort of largely led by an organizer named Gloria Richardson, who is still alive, um, I believe in Cambridge. Um, and she, uh, led one of the, one of the sort of what I would call the sort of bridge movements between what we think of as the nonviolent moment and the black power moment. And there was a lot of, um, they did not allow, um, they did not practice nonviolence. Um, she advocated rioting and, and fighting back. Um, so there's a long, long history of, of black women in particular being at the, at the forefront of these arguments. Um, and I think it's, it's part of, you know, what, what I was describing and, and what a lot of people have theorized, the sort of recapturing of the civil rights movement. One of the things that has been really disastrous, um, as part of that has been, the idea that um, that armed self-defense in general and sort of militant defense, uh, armed, armed self-defense in specific and militant defense in general is sort of a macho creed, right? As sort of a, a, a bro-y sort of thing to do when in fact um, the, the, the opposite is the case historically. Brilliant, brilliant. I think, you know, on the, on the subject of race, you know, one thing that I appreciated in sort of your efforts to expand and flesh out, you know, these subjects of, uh, looting and rioting, particularly when it comes to rioting, is that you make a very important distinction between, I guess, on the one hand, liberatory rioting and what you refer and others refer to as white rioting. And I was wondering if you could talk about that distinction and kind of get to what you're talking about when you're talking about liberatory rioting in that sense. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a certain strain or tendency um, on the radical left. I think it's very small, but 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 uh, but but I'm familiar with it. Of of um, to sort of see any kind of upheaval. You know, there's a lot of people who see upheaval as bad. So so there's sort of a reaction which is like, no no no, any sort of upheaval against the system as it exists is is sort of good, and riots are sort of good. And I think a lot of the people who um, didn't read the book but but wanted to critique it sort of imagine that that's the argument that I'm making. The argument that I'm making is that. Um, history is made in the streets. Um, and that means that history, both, you know, both the history of, you know, what some people would call progress. Um, I, I wouldn't because I think that's a bit of a myth. But anyway, the history of, of both sort of liberation and violence and violent oppression are happening in the streets more than in the parliaments in the White House, wherever. Um, and as a result, that means that rioting, um, which is a very, uh, can be a very effective and powerful tactic, um, can, can, can be used for for any any wide variety of things, and I mean, we saw. I don't know if 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 the audience remembers, but like in 2013, 2014, there was this sort of weird moment where there were all these what what were called party riots, where college kids were just sort of rioting in the street suddenly um, without clear uh, cause. Um, there were you know there are sports riots, obviously very famous, um, and right now also in um, you know in 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 India, for example, a big part of the rise of the BJP has been. Um, anti-Muslim, Hindu, sort of Hindu supremacist rioting um, and communal violence. And I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people like to talk about people who are against rioting really like to bring up those riots that, that you know, like as though it's somehow they completely, um, they are the only form of rioting that exists. It's like communal violence. So I think it's like really important if we understand rioting um, in general and looting more specifically um, as being um political ways, political tactics uh, that we can use to, to try and get free, we have to understand that that no tactic in and of itself is, you know, necessarily like going to be 
able to fight in one direction or another. Um, right. So often um, in the, in the, you know, one of the ways reconstruction was defeated in the South, there was a lot of white rioting, um, white ex-Confederate soldiers organized themselves into most famously the Ku Klux Klan, but there were lots of other, um, there was the white man's league, a lot of sort of other sort of terrorist organizations basically. And they would sort of riot at polling places or they would, um, attack, you know, uh, attack meetings of, of, uh, of, you know, ex, ex slaves. Um, so all of which is to say, um, Rioting is a is a powerful form of direct action um, that can transform the uh, the relations of power in any uh, place in any situation. And so often, um, the white supremacists and the right have used it historically, especially as a way of establishing um, sort of hegemonic control over a society. Um, but we saw it sort of unite the right um, in twenty seventeen. That was like a white riot um, of sorts. Yeah, and if I I just wanted to pick up on on part of that there um, because I I appreciated as well the way that you talked about how you know rioting and looting in that moment you know I guess both as me in in terms of consuming it through media but also for the people who were on the ground there part of what makes it so powerful and so threatening is that it, it kind of like opens a portal to like mm -hmm. a different kind of property relations, right? A different, a different way of being, even just momentarily. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I felt, I couldn't find it in the book, but I felt like you mentioned something about Ursula Le Guin in the book. And it was funny because I was just reading The Dispossessed and there's, not to go down a rabbit hole, but there's a, uh, a section where like Shevik, the main character is talking to his friend and, and he's like, I don't understand why they're suppressing my work and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, it's not your ideas that they find dangerous, dangerous. It's that you embody those ideas, right? Like they're mm -hmm. trying to hide you from public view because you are proof that those ideas can actually physically happen in this world. Is there anything that you wanted to say to that in the context of looting and rioting in terms of um, sort of like smashing what maybe a lot of people perceive as sort of the only or the natural order of things and, and sort of providing this view into another way of being? Yeah, that's a very, that's a very, um, I think that's a very important question, especially for the political moment we find ourselves in now. Um, when you were bringing that up, I, I was also thinking, uh, strangely enough, of um, Butch Lee's um, biography of, re-biography of Harriet Tubman, which I quote in the book. Um, and Butch Lee talks about how um, there's this really, there's this, this dual need to both defang Harriet Tubman, but also make her sort of um, totally exceptional, like an exceptional hero, not part of a movement, because when we make these sort of revolutionary leaders um, into exceptional heroes, then it becomes impossible to imagine that anyone could do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, she's a particular genius. She's a particular, you know, she's she's one in a million. It's very, very strange. Um, and I think that, so, so there's this sort of, there is this dual... Um, movement to both sort of disown and dis and you know to 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 slander rioters right but then also to try and isolate them um which i think you hear in like the sort of outside agitator myth or um or what we were talking about earlier with opportunism um so this idea that both they are they are both spectacularly singular and sort of weirdly um and and weirdly like less politically meaningful right so you both decry their meaning and make them seem unrepeatable. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that was huge about the George Floyd uprising um, that we've just lived through is that so many people 
had experiences in the street that, um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, the, the New York Times was saying, you know, at, at some point it was the highest participation of any movement in U.S. social history. Um, like, I think it, I think it is probably on par with the um, the movement in the 60s um, in the last in the last decade, the number of people who have had experience in the street, but particularly in the last six months. Um, and that, you know, that really and I saw this again and again, like going through the research that experience of property relations suddenly being flipped and the police being defeated and things being possible, even if it only lasts 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, it changes people's horizons. Um, I think one of the things that we really saw um, in that in that moment as well and that that, that we could talk about is um, in the with the destruction of the uh, third precinct um, in Minneapolis, suddenly police abolition was on the table. Now, I mean, I know y'all y'all have both been, you know, abolitionists for a long, long time. Like, uh, and I, I know I'm sure you remember how impossible abolish the police felt like to argue to people two mm -hmm. years ago. Two mm -hmm. years ago felt impossible, right? Um, and that, and suddenly, when one police station burned, suddenly everyone went, "Oh, it's just a building," you know. And like, I think right. that, you know, I mean, of course, they knew that. And if you ask them that, they knew that. But I think the 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 veil of invincibility and permanence and historical inevitability of the police was pierced by direct action and that's the thing that really really scares the system about rioting and looting um on some one of the things that really scares them is that is that suddenly people can see through what are ultimately these myths about the police being righteous and and permanent and property being the only way to organize society and everything having to be paid for um, and us having to work for a living in order to get things that people like us make all of these myths are are um are held together uh by our consent but also by you know by the police by the prisons and by panes of plate glass and in a riot that stuff starts to break down and it changes people and i think having that experience of that change even though, you know, we didn't really we didn't really see a lot of like sort of uh, victories in terms of policy changes this year. Um, we didn't see a lot of like an immediate emergence of like a of a, of a deeper movement in some ways. I think we're still, I think we're still. It's going to be years before we really see the effects of that uprising. Um, and I'm optimistic about them, even if even if right now with the election things feel quiet and and difficult and scary. Yeah, I mean, I I would certainly agree with that. And uh, I think you said something in the book about, um, you know, about uh, that speaks to that. Um, I can't remember the, the quote off the top of my head, um, but you talked about how, you know, the, the struggle was not something that emerged in that moment, but it had been something that the foundation had been laid down, you know, for decades before, hmm. right? And we're experiencing that now, right? So as you just said, you know, um, even in March, hell, no one was talking about prison abolition, right? I mean, right, some, totally. of us, some of us were, were talking about it, but not everyone was talking about prison abolition. So, you know, we don't even have to go back that far to see how this really shifted the way that people were thinking um, and, and talking about what is actually possible um, in, in the moment, right? Um, something that, um, and I, I want to, uh, just a half-formed thought, uh, which may include a question in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> But a couple of things that, you know, uh, you made me think of as, as you were talking is also, you know, the history of, um, of riots, uh, of prison riots as well, and how that 
kind of gets overlooked or, you know, if there's attention that's focused on that, um, it gets downplayed or it, you know, the, what you get from the media is like, you know, prison officials perspective on what is happening. Right. And, um, and I'm wondering if you could speak to that even a little bit, or if you had something you wanted to say about that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a real, you know, even it's a, it's a really, really important point. Um, and even, you know, I, myself, I'm, I'm guilty of this, even, um, when talking about the, the sort of last, um, 10 years of struggle, um, people don't talk about the, the largest prison strike in history, right. That happened in 2016, mm-hmm. um, the free Alabama movement, and then the, the many other, you know, movements that have also blossomed, um, and prison riots. I think, um, I think people, Prison riots are very, very complicated. I think they've been they've been very you know I mean prisons are and and y'all both obviously know a lot about this of course like prisons have been have been very very um, actively painted as unimaginably dangerous and antisocial places mm-hmm. um, and so the prison riot has sort of entered into I think that way of thinking as like a sort of you know a a place where um, scores are settled or you know gangs you know like sort of this sort of this this violence that's being sort of kept on you know, kept in control by the guards suddenly is unleashed, um, which, you know, obviously I think is, 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 uh, you know, exactly backwards. Right. Um, um, (laughs) yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's bullshit. And you see it, um, you know, and interestingly, like, that's funny as I'm talking about that, I'm thinking about, there was this book, uh, about the LA riots from 2016 called all involved by Ryan Gaddis. Um, that I thought was awful. Um, sorry to like talk shit on some random novelist, but like, but he, the whole book is about how like it's these gangsters settling their scores in the context of the riots, you know, like going and murdering people. Um, and I think there is this idea that, that the only thing keeping criminals from enacting their violent lust for vengeance or death or whatever, this really, it's, it's a really obscene fantasy, um, is, is society as it exists. And so if, you know, if suddenly there's a moment of, of, of change or upheaval, like surely that violence will burst forth. Um, and I think, you know, um, prison riots do tend to have more violence because prison guards are more willing to, um, it's, it's just a more desperate situation and the, and the possibilities of action, you know, I mean, riots and rioters in a city can attack one area. And then when the police come, they can disperse and they can go somewhere else. Right. In a prison, there's not a lot of, you can't go anywhere. Um, really, you know, so, so often the, the, confrontations have to be really, really concentrated. And I think, and I don't know as much about it as, as I wish I did, but I think one of the things that, um, that's really telling about the history of, of, you know, what I, what, what, what we were talking about as liberatory riots is actually how little or relatively little interpersonal violence there is. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you compare that to things like, like to white rioting or, or, um, other forms of communal violence, the focus there is on interpersonal violence. So I think often we can, when we look at what is actually happening in a riot. Um, and again, with prison riots, it's very difficult because the information is controlled and we it'll, it takes years for us to know what really happened. Um, often, if we ever do. Um, uh, yeah, so I think I think there's there's all these all these ways of thinking about violence um, where what a riot really does is open up a space where the police can't carry out their violence anymore or in a prison, the prison guards can't really easily carry out their violence anymore. 
Um, and then suddenly that's an incredibly violent situation because then other people become capable of that violence. Does that make sense? I don't know if-, if Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, I, I was connecting that and as I was reading, you know, as reading the book, um, making connections to, you know, whether it was Attica um, or Clinton mm. or, you know, the Vaughn Rebellion uh, from just a, a few years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the way that, prisoners, um, you know, are thought of as, you know, like these depoliticized, um, you know, subjects, right? <laughs> that totally. they don't have, you know, they're not paying attention to what's going on that, you know, what'd you say? I said they're portrayed as not having agency themselves. No, not having mm -hmm. agency that, you know, they're disconnected and all these things. I mean, it's like, okay, so let's, you know, we can, argue in terms of how they're disconnected on purpose from, you know, getting information uh, about the state of the world, but also very connected because folks get information in, right? Like they're reading newspapers and doing all of this stuff and they're paying attention. I mean, some of the smartest, most, um, you know, sharpest political commentary um, that I see or that I read uh, is coming out of, you know, uh, people that are incarcerated, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, they're paying more attention to what's happening, right? Than a lot mm -hmm. of other people. And it's not to, you know, it's not to flatten it out. It's not to say that that's what everybody is doing or, you know, whatever. But I think that there were um, there were some parallels there with the way that you were describing um, how people think about, you know, quote unquote, looters. Right. Mm -hmm. as just, you know, these people who are just wreaking havoc right on the community. And I remember uh, just a few months ago when, you know, um, when this all exploded, right? When the George Floyd um, protests really exploded and uh, particularly in Atlanta, right? Mm -hmm. And had uh, Killer Mike coming out and wagging his finger and, you know, uh, telling people not to burn down the targets in their communities and whatnot. And oh God, I'm just yeah. like shaking my head um, at that whole moment. But, you know, it, again, it's like you, you talk about those kinds of the way that people respond to that right and we were seeing it you know in that moment like we're living through it and we're seeing how people on all sides were coming out and basically saying well this is counterproductive this is undermining the movement why are you doing this and all of this stuff and you begin the book and i think that this is a really important point that you make and you carry this throughout the book um where you talk about the racialized history um, of looting and that this that looting is a form of political action. And I want you to say more about that. I mean, if you have the book um, in front of you, I would love for you to read a passage. If not, then don't worry about it. Yeah. Which passage? Did you have one in mind? Or so, Yeah. Um, it begins on page two where you begin with uh, but rioting and looting and then it ends on page three uh, and state violence. Yeah. Okay. I, um, I think it's a brilliant quote, and I, I just um, or several passages. So oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, um, right. So I'll, I'll just uh, give that a read here. So yeah. So this is from the from the introduction here, um, very very early in the book. Um, but rioting and looting have few defenders. Conservatives, of course, oppose it utterly, rooting for the police to put down protesters. With the far right claiming riots are just professional troublemaking, professional troublemaking fomented by George Soros, Jews, and the global elite. Liberals oppose rioting too. Because their love, of, their love for law and order is much greater than their belief in freedom, they claim that rioters are 
hurting their own cause or are led by police provocateurs, agreeing with the fascists that rioters are paid troublemakers, just disagreeing about who signs the checks. In the face of rioting and looting, even sympathetic self-identifying radicals sometimes balk. They claim that these more extreme actions are mainly the work of outside agitators, opportunists, or out-of-step middle-class radicals. They claim that those doing the looting are not part of the movement, that they are apolitical and ignorant, that their actions reflect false consciousness, or even that they are acting as consumers and therefore furthering capitalism. From within the movement, people tend to claim that what happened wasn't rioting, but an uprising or a rebellion. No one wants to be associated with the idea of riot, and this is doubly true for looting. Even while a riot is going on, people in the streets often work to block looting. Many of them do so out of care for the struggle, worried about unfair media representation and hoping to advance the politically and ethically advantageous position. I understand that instinct, but it was to critique and push against that thinking, crucially in love and solidarity with those who pursue it and with looters the world over, that I began this project. Other people, however, including local politicians, middle-class leaders, political groups, and reactionary organizations, block looting in order to gain power for themselves. These peacekeepers and de-escalators cooperate with the police to derail and destroy uprisings to show the white power structure that they are responsible parties, that because they can control and contain the unruly masses, they are the natural leaders, the people who should be negotiated with. This book is spit in their eyes. Looting is so unpopular not because it is an error or bad for the movement, but because it is often a movement's most radical tactic. Looting attacked some of the core beliefs and structures of cis-heteropatriarchal racial capitalist society, and so frightens and disturbs nearly everyone, even some of its participants. After all, we have all been raised and trained to hold, follow, and reproduce those beliefs every day. Looting rejects the legitimacy of ownership rights and property, the moral injunction to work for a living, and the justice of law and order. Looting reveals all these for what they are, not natural facts, but social constructs benefiting a few at the expense of the many, upheld by ideology, economy, and state violence. Um, and yeah, like I, you know, I, I think reading that passage and, and what you were sort of saying, him, what, what you really, something really clicked into place for me actually in this conversation is the way that we think about prisoners now is very, very similar, sorry to sort of hop a great distance, the way we, that people thought about, and people still think about the enslaved um, in America, right? Which is that they're not real political subjects, they're kept ignorant, they don't know what's happening, they're, you know, they're illiterate, they're poor, they don't know what's going on. Um, and so, and that misunderstanding, um, as W.E.B. Du Bois famously writes about in Black Reconstruction, has meant that generations of historians have failed to understand the Civil War, have failed mm -hmm. to see the general strike of the enslaved, that uh, the mass, mass uprising that overthrew chattel slavery and, and built Reconstruction, which almost turned into a real social revolution. Um, it was eventually defeated. But, um, but I think, you know, and I think like, prisoners are, are, I think, seen very, very similarly, right? It's sort of like prison is a black box. People there don't know what's going on. They are pure criminals. And I think we can really see the way that that happens historically by tracing the way that the slave um, as, a, as a legal and social category immediately transitioned in the wake of emancipation into the criminal and the vagrant. Um, you know, and the way in which like in the South, in as early as 1865, the Confederacy collapses and they immediately start putting out laws, um, slave codes, vagrancy laws, or not slave codes, black codes and vagrancy laws that basically say that if someone is found without work, they can be forced into labor, into chain gangs, into, um, into all these forms of labor. And I think 
if we take the the um and I think we we should uh, take the prison move the prison abolitionist movements you know claims from inside from inside that that slavery continues on the inside. We can sort of see that even these ideological myths about slavery continue in the way that we think about prisoners. Um, for me personally, um, my thinking was so so dramatically shaped by Mumia Abu Jamal and Russell Maroon Schotes. Um, I quote Schotes extensively in the book. His his incredible research on Maroons is some of the most important and incisive I've ever encountered of any sort of American historical research. And he's doing that from solitary confinement. So mm -hmm. I think in terms of, you know, um, or well, he was in solitary confinement when he was doing much of that research. So I think, um, yeah, I think I think you you just really clicked a lot into place for me when, when you brought that up. And I think it's really important to see, um, you know, following... Uh, Christina Sharp, following Saidiya Hartman, and, and many, many other thinkers, to see these continuities and to understand them as as there are these reforms that happen, um, but but true transformation hasn't occurred, and so we end up having the same ideas as people had in the 1850s about what people were like, you know, mm -hmm. and and that's very strange, but it's true, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and treating people in in pretty much the same ways. I mean, you know. You can be you can be sent back to prison if you are, you know, on probation or parole and you fail to get a job or keep right. a job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so totally. it's like sending people right back to prison for, you know, for these things. And uh yeah. Um I was I was sharing uh, you know, what you talk about in the book, the thesis of the book with um, with my son. And he was so excited um, to hear about this. And he called me, you know, because I was putting together my questions and whatever. And he, you know, called to check in and um, and asked me, he's like, did you get those questions together? Because it sounds like it's a really good book and you need to have your shit together. Right. And it's like, <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> we went through, you know, like I talked to questions and he's like, oh, okay. I think that, I think that's good. I think that's good enough. Um, you know, um, but he was really, really fascinated, um, by, you know, by the overall subject and the idea of, you know, of, of the book and uh, is looking forward to, you know, when the paperback comes out so that they can get it because they can't, right. they can't have hardbacks. Um, but yeah, I wanted to share that, you know, little uh, personal um, anecdote with you because I, I thought you might appreciate that. Um, yeah, Brian. I do. Yeah. I do very much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I love that. Really yeah, my my mind is reeling as well uh, from the last <laughs> 10 minutes of that conversation. I, you know, and I guess jumping around a little bit, I please forgive us listeners uh, if we're giving you uh, whiplash with this <laughs> conversation. But, you know, I think um, there, are, there are a lot of connections with the sort of the treatment of uh, prison riots and the treatment of riots on the outside and the continuity uh, with the way... Uh, that enslaved people were uh, spoken about or conceptualized or treated. And I, I think two of them that, that kind of came to my mind, particularly thinking back about uh, sort of my own coverage of, you know, the Vaughn Rebellion and the prison strikes, there is this idea, and you talk about this, you know, in terms of uh, rioting and looting on the streets, but there's also an idea behind bars that, you know, when there's a riot happening, it's chaos. There's no organization. Um, and the, the antidote to that is to reinstate sort of the, the natural control of the institution, right? But the riot itself 
exposes the myth of control. I mean, anybody, if you talk to anybody in prison, I, or, you know, maybe I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but at least in my experience, uh, something that I've heard time and time again is that, you know, the guards don't control the prison. You know, right. that is sort of like a, a, a myth of the way these institutions truly operate. Um, and I think in terms of, of prison rebellions or riots not being organized, I think it's very clear to look at, uh, you know, all sorts of examples, including, I guess, Attica most famously, with the way that in the midst of sort of, uh, sort of the constant threat of a violent response to come raining down on them at any moment, they were still able to organize food and water and medical care and distribute information among themselves. And so, you know, I guess uh, I wasn't sure if there was anything maybe you wanted to talk about on this subject of riots or looting. Um, I mean, I, I guess I really appreciate that you speak of them and, and treat them as tactics um, and sort of fight back against this idea that they are sort of the embodiment of disorganization and chaos. Is there anything that you wanted to sort of speak to uh, on that level? Yeah, I think, you know, I think this is this actually goes hand in hand, interestingly. And I, I don't know if I wrote about this um, directly enough in the book, actually, because it's, it's really developed through conversations I've had afterwards. The, the myth about what protesting should look like is also a myth about how it should be organized. Um, and when people talk about organizing, a lot of the time what they mean um, is sort of, uh, and, and they don't necessarily phrase it exactly, but it means like a certain kind of forms of, you have to have certain kinds of meetings or you have to have like a leadership structure or a membership base and like getting organized means, you know, means forming, you know, a political party or an NGO or whatever, what have you, you know, a movement uh, with, with, you know, a three letter acronyms title. Um, and I think, you know, like one of the, the of one of the facts of social life, and I mean, I think this is like this is like Marx, you know, it's not even um, that that you know it's hardly new, is that like we are all constantly being organized by by capital and by and by and and socially we also organize ourselves constantly, right? Um, not just in terms of family, but um, you know, we produce we and by we I sort of you know I mean whatever the the working class like the people of 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 society produce everything, including its forms of organization. And so, in many ways, like you know, and obviously in prison, this is much more dramatic and violent. Um, the the way that the consent is sort of um, is is gained, but ultimately, like the system does rely on our consent, right? Um, the sort of the 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 myth of the general strike, the idea that if everyone just put down their tools in the world and stopped going to work for three days, everything would collapse, right? Like, is has some economic truth to it, um, and I think so. Yeah. So in terms of like the questions of organization, like I think a lot of what um, what people want to see in terms of organization is a leadership structure. Um, is a set of clear demands. Um, but what a leadership structure and a set of clear demands means is that those people would then, in theory, be willing to stop the movement if if we win those demands, right? That's that's sort of the idea behind that kind of organization. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that that we've seen in in riots and looting, but also many of the many of the movements that um, that have have appeared um, over the last decade, um, has been a a, a real um, a real eschewing of of that kind of organization and instead a sort of focus on a, a more kind of like total and imaginative um sort of change and transformation so i think a lot of times what um you know 
what what people call uh, disorganized is actually highly, highly coordinated. Um, people are moving with groups of friends. They're talking to each other. They're, you know, they're, they're strategizing, as you say, they're communicating, they're distributing um, food. One of the things that I saw a lot in, out in Philly, like during the George Floyd uprising was in the first weeks of protests after the, after sort of the big days of rioting, people just brought food to all the demos and they would feed everyone along the march route as well. If we were walking through a neighborhood or whatever. And like that, like doesn't get called organized, I guess, usually, because because there's sort of like, you know, there's no one told someone else to do that, right? Someone just voluntarily did that. But to me, that's a beautiful form of organization. Yeah. Um, and I think, it, you know, in a riot, like a lot of, you know, people are looking out for each other. Um, they're fighting, the, they're fighting police together. They're, they're sort of one tactic that's very common that we saw happen was one group of what what uh, I don't remember who refers to them as this. Sorry, but as lead rioters, I think it's Gerald Horn in um, the Fire this time. Um, lead rioters will go up and break out a window of a store, and then they'll run away, and the police will sort of follow them. And then a group of looters will come later. And now that the store is opened, it's a lot easier and safer to do. And then there will be crowd outside, sort of protecting that zone. All of these people are 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 acting in a coordinated way. They're just not literally telling each other what to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or it's the um, decentralized structure, right? It's, so there is, there is a kind of, as you already said, there is coordination there. It's just, you know, I think what people are looking for is, you know, who's the media contact? Who at the, you know, whatever XYZ movement it, do we call so that we can talk to who represents you, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're looking for that one, you know, that one person or um, the organization, but the kind of um, mutual aid uh, that you're describing that was happening on the ground, that was very well coordinated, very well organized and was happening outside of, you know, the, the, structure the oversight purview of the state and this mm. is what really bothers people and we saw it happening not only in dc but we saw it all over the country right but um there were also attempts uh i believe it was dc or baltimore in particular to co-opt it and to you know put it under the auspices of the state or the local uh government there and to say oh they were a part of it when they had nothing to do with it uh to begin with so that was i think a an interesting shift in, in connection with um what's going on i want to piggyback off of brian's question and kind of go back um a little bit because uh you make a point in the book to talk about this uh, disorganized, opportunistic, and you know, call it um, some people call it a mistake uh, around looting, right? Um, and you trace the history of labor organizing and looting um, in ways that I think are really important and interesting. One of the examples that you raised in the book um, was about the Pullman strike of 1894, and um, I, I want you to talk about that, um, that example specifically, because I think that there's some important lessons there that we can draw from. And um, yeah, I'm wondering if you could uh, just spend a few minutes talking about that. Yeah, so the the sort of the Pullman strike um, is in, as you said, in 1894. Um, it's, a, it's a huge, it's a famous strike um, in sort of the history of, of U.S. labor history. Um, uh, it's it's one of the more sort of famous struggles, um, and it's partially famous because uh, the ARU, the American Railway Union, um, is being led by Eugene Debs, who's a who's a, a socialist and, and a radical, um, one of the more 
one of the one of the more uh, sort of revolutionary uh, labor leaders um, in the whole period of the early labor movement. Um, and you know, so in 1894, so this Pullman strike it spreads all across the country. Um, basically, uh, rail traffic is shut down almost everywhere, um, and they're sort of trying to enforce this. This um, they're tr they're trying to they're fighting back against against this went wage cuts and basically in Chicago, um, the president sends in sends in troops. Um, there's massive rioting that spreads outside of just the the railway union. Um, and basically, west of the Mississippi, um, all rail traffic, um, which is to say all economic activity in the country, basically shuts down. Um, but uh, but what ends up happening is that that the government sort of um, the government and the leaders of the of the railways make a deal with the uh, American Federation of Labor, uh, the heads of the other unions, not the ARU, um, and sort of get all of the sympathy strikers back to work. Um, and at that point, you know, you sort of have, so at that point you have, um, Eugene Debs and the ARU are kind of out on their own and you have big crowds of sort of riotous, you know, proletarians ready to fight with them, um, on their side, I mean, um, but, but the, but the, the labor movement in general sort of withdrawing support. And there's this point where Eugene Debs has to decide, um, to say, you know, forget it. Like, let's call for the general strike without the support of the AFL. We have the power. Um, and at that point, it would be an elite, a totally illegal insurrectionary strike, right? At that point, he's calling for a revolution, basically, or at least sort of the beginning of a revolutionary sequence. And if he is to do so, he's going to risk, you know, he's, he risks everything, all the, all the sort of organizational gains of the ARU. So instead, he backs down. Um, even this, even at this moment, this like this very radical, um, you know, in my opinion, one of a genuine a, a figure in history, genuinely interested in liberation in many ways. Um, backs down because the pressure of risking everything, throwing everything that your organization has built up to that point into the possibility of insurrection is too great. And he and he and he sort of panics and he he comes he backs down. The ARU never ever ever um, achieves that level of power again that it has in 1894. It never achieves that level of popularity. Um, so what what I sort of try to argue in the book and 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 um, and what I believe is that in moments like that, an organization, the, the nature of an organization will be to conserve itself rather than to th risk everything for the for the victory of this one fight. Um, and but what ends up happening is when you conserve yourself, the thing you conserve actually ends up becoming powerless over a decade, maybe a few years, maybe maybe a few decades. Um, you know, we see it in the in the sort of the collapse of the radicalism of the a of the CIO as soon as it joins the AFL in '38, um, and then within within five years, it's or within well, within nine years, it's sort of disowning communists and swinging way to the right. Um, so there's this long history of of certain forms of organizational control and certain forms of hierarchical control over movement and over over strike and over power, um, really just innately, no matter the character of the person in charge innately leading towards a kind of conservatism that will protect the organization and the role of that person over the goals of, of the individual militants or even of the individual who is in power. Hi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah. love part of the book too, because I like, you know, your conversation of how the history of looting and, and rioting decenters unions. I mean, I know we're talking very specifically about union history right here, but 
from the history of worker resistance. It decenters unions to have this view of looting as a tactic and as, not as an aberration, you know, or a, a shameful act, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, a, I guess I'll, since we're coming up on an hour, I'll leave that dangling uh, tantalizingly for our listeners. Uh, <laughs> I definitely highly recommend that they get this book. Um, I guess just to, to wrap up here, was there anything... You know, particularly going back to how we started this conversation, you know, the book came out just as uh, protests were erupting in the street around the country. You know, is there anything um, that we haven't talked about today? Any points that you want to drive home, you know, particularly pertaining to events that have unfolded since uh, since the book's publication? Um, You know, I think I think. Uh, thank you so much for for the incredibly kind words and for having me. It's it's been such a pleasure. Um, I think I just want I, I want to like sort of I, I like to sort of try and remind people um, when I have an opportunity like this that like in June we had Donald Trump hiding in the White House bunker as people attacked the White House gates. That really happened. <laughs> the 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 seat of government in the United States was actually under threat from rioters. That happened four months ago. Um, you have not, you're, you're not crazy. The uprising was real. I mean, I don't, I don't want to like, you know, be too, I don't, I'm not trying to be condescending, but I think there's this, there's this immediate, you know, um, push by the media to reframe or erase, um, these things that we experienced as people. And I think I, I just, you know, one of the things that I've really learned from, particularly from studying the sixties is that we think of the sixties when we think back, we think of it as like almost like a montage of images, right? Like we just think like, you know, like, oh, like Selma, you know, or, you know, whatever. We see the lunch counters, then we see we see the Freedom Riders, then we see, you know, then we see Huey Newton and Nasada, you know, like there's sort of, there's this series of images. And we don't think about the fact that it was, it was basically two and a half decades of struggle is what we think of as that moment. And in individual cities within the civil rights movement, um, there were there were there were tons of small things, but big moments of uprising were were rare, maybe two, three times in that three decade period. Um, so I think I, I, I for me, and this is also just for me, it's not just for for everyone else, but to remember that like we are still in the midst and the wake of one of the most massive and important uprisings in American history, and we have not by any stretch of the imagination seen where that's headed or where that's where that's going to go and the the sort of anti-political distraction of the elections um and all of the all the mechanisms of the state right now feel overwhelming but uh, but honestly like we have so much power and we all met each other in the streets and there's so many of us and and i really think that 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 abolition is genuinely on the table in a way that you know as as we were starting at the conversation i don't know that i really thought it was at the beginning of this year and i think that that gives me hope even as we face down all of this political despair and and horror and 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 you know because i think the pandemic, these this economic crisis, this constitutional crisis, we would be facing all of these things no matter what. They were coming for us no matter what. But we fought back, and right now in Thailand and in um, and in Bolivia with the election, but also in Nigeria, there are there are people fighting back all over the world. The last two years has seen a global wave of struggle um, on par with 2011, but before that, on par with 1968. Um, and I think we're moving into times where things are really becoming possible. Um, and I, I have to remind myself that all the time. So maybe it's helpful for other people to hear it as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I need that reminder. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, 
several times a day, but <laughs> Vicki, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Um, absolutely recommend uh, that people pick up the book. Um, I, it's just, there's so much, uh, and we could probably spend another, you know, four hours uh, talking with you about the many things that, that you describe in the book and still barely scratch the surface because uh, there is a lot. It, it's, uh, it's a very thorough, um, a thorough book. And um, yeah, so thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you so much for the incredibly kind words. It means so, so much. You know, I'm just, I, I'm just some, some girl wrote a book. So it's so nice to have people appreciate it and read it. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. We recently launched our new website, www.beyond-prisons.com. There you will find a Beyond Prisons guide for supporting prisoners during the COVID-19 crisis, including a link to a downloadable PDF in small and large print formats. There's also a section on mutual aid projects that we update frequently and a list of demands that includes a call for the immediate release of prisoners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.